And if I had just known a little bit of it, I think I would have been much more prepared. More Wiser Podcast. Tammy Chang, pediatric oncologist. So Tammy, in your TED Talk, you list a lot of statistics on the issues currently going on with female physicians or just doctors in general right now in your field. What's the one stat that really sticks out to you and epitomizes the struggle currently going on? It's hard to pick just one. Yeah, but if I had to pick one, that's such a great question. It would be that for women physicians, which was the focus of my talk and what I a lot of what I do, 40% of women doctors are either quitting medicine completely or going part-time within only six years after finishing training. And, and it's shocking and saddening because you have to imagine there are some brilliant doctors who are going to be no longer at a full-time pace helping patients. That one stuck out to me a lot. The other one, one in five doctors have considered taking their own life. Yes, that's the other one. Yeah. It's it's sad it's when really you think sad. about it. Yeah. Because you're obviously a doctor, Tammy, and I'm clearly not. Mm -hmm. And so when I go to the doctor, honestly, I'm not thinking about you at all. I'm all selfish. I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about, (laughs) oh, I have all these ailments and ah, what's my life come to? But I think we all need to take a step back and realize that the person who's helping us is actually a person. They're going through so many different things. Knowing what you know now, would you still recommend to a young person, specifically a young woman, to go into medicine? I still full wholeheartedly know that our our profession's just such an incredible profession. It's like such a such a gift and a privilege to do this work. What I want for every young woman or every young person doesn't matter doesn't matter what the what the gender is, is just to be go in with their eyes open, not to be blindsided. Know what the stats are. Know what the data is, because that was a big part of why my generation really struggled. Because we were kind of in between the generation that really struggled before us, and honestly, twenty years before me, right? Or I'm in my early forties now. So the, the women who are now in their sixties and close to retiring, they went through a whole lot more. And yet, I was unaware of most of that. And if I had just known a little bit of it. I think I would have been much more prepared. And it wasn't anyone's fault. I think they were trying to not hold us back in any way, right? And so today when I talk to young people, because I talk to young people all the time, of course, because it's everything I'm doing is like, of course, we want it better now, but we really want it better for the next, the next young people coming up, right? It's all about making it better and helping them realize just really what they're up against so that they're in with their eyes open. So you weren't exposed to the environment you were going to be hopping into at all during any of your many years, many, many years of, of schooling before going into practice? Well, I knew it was going to be hard because my father is a physician. So I wasn't totally in the dark in a way. And I knew it was a lot of work, a lot of dedication because he works long hours. But I never saw the gender, the gender disparity piece of it myself. All those years, even when I was in college, med school, internship, residency, maybe a little bit started to become a parent in fellowship. And then when I hit the real world, uh, that's when it really became obvious. So that was new for me, 20 some years in. Would you mind sharing some of the revelations that occurred? And if you're not comfortable, it's okay. But I think they need to be 
brought to light the the disparity between male and female doctors? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I'm I'm very open, and I I certainly am just doing it out of love for other people, so they don't have to go through what we went through, right? That's the whole point of all this. And so I think I was just oblivious that there's a whole nother way you have to be as a woman, first of all, to be taken seriously, to be respected. You're also expected to act a certain way. You can't be too assertive because then you're considered a B-I-T-C-H very quickly and get in trouble. You also can't be too meek or quiet because then people just assume you're stupid. So there's this very fine line. It's called the double bind where women, you're either, you're either too sharp, too soft, you're never just right, right? You're never just that porridge, right? And Goldilocks. And we see this across all industries. It doesn't matter if it's just medicine or not, but it, medicine's a male-dominated industry. So we tend to see it more in the male-dominated ones. And it's, uh, I, I was totally unaware that it mattered uh, how, we, how we are perceived by other people so much. And I think specific to medicine, I've read, and I've seen it happen in real life, where patients and probably male patients are much quicker to use your first name mm-hmm. than to call you doctor. Yeah. How often does that happen where someone just immediately forgoes the formalities that they would otherwise use with a man? Honestly, to me, it doesn't happen that often, but I do know it does. In fact, there's been papers and papers written about it, especially in the academic world, where when women are presenting, for instance, on a panel, pa- panelist, like on a panel in a, in a like national academic conference, all the men are introduced by their doctor something name and their woman is introduced as a woman. Certainly a lot of my friends and colleagues still get the first name. I, I think because of where I work, everyone is Dr. So-and-so and everyone, including our staff, all calls us that. So there's not really that difference. I haven't, I don't recall that happening actually from a patient perspective. Um, and I don't think it's their fault when it happens, right? Because it's unconscious. No one's intending to give women less respect. It's just they don't expect the woman to be a doctor. It's not what their vision is, right, of a, or image of a physician. What should the comeback be? Should you immediately stop someone in their tracks? Let's pull this car over and make sure we get it straight because otherwise it will just keep going? Or what do you recommend to people, other female doctors who have had that? Mm. Yeah, I'm all about... I'm so deep into this DEIB work. It's it, it's all about giving people grace because they're not, for the most part, people are good people and they're not doing it to be mean or disrespectful. They're un, it's unconscious bias, and so I'm all about saying just giving that person grace, but also holding them accountable. And so if it's in a safe moment where you feel it's okay, you feel you feel safe, like you're able to just share. I mean, I'm just very honest. I'm like, oh, actually, I'm Doctor Doctor Chang. I don't take it personally and just like, I'm just a slight correction and a reminder if they call me by my first name, something like that. Cause I'll, I'll do that in meetings or in presentations. Uh, when, if someone accidentally slips up and calls me my first name, I'm like, thank you so much. Yes. I'm Dr. Chang and blah, blah, blah. So it's not a slap in the face. It's just a gentle reminder because no one means to. But patients do play a big part into the mental health of doctors though, because you're, I mean, you're seeing patients all day long. Like nonstop. Yeah. And I know it's a lot of it's, nonstop. It's a lot of nonstop. And I, <laughs> I don't know. If, that's another thing I don't think most patients realize that the average physician sees 20 to 25 patients a day wow. in an outpatient clinic setting. And so when you've got your 15 minute appointment, well, I mean, we wish we could spend more time with you. <laughs> you don't, 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 don't 
like no question. We wish we could spend all day with each patient, right? But we literally have 15 minutes and that includes the entire visit plus all the charting and the orders and the blah, 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 you know, all the things we have to order for you to make sure you're on your way to get all the care you need. So it's very tight. And the other thing you said when we first chatted was that it's not specific to the type of medicine you're practicing, these feelings of burnout and the mental health pressures. I know you're in pediatric oncology, which would be a very difficult field, but other fields are feeling the same way. What -hmm. do you think it is about the medical profession specifically that seems to be so hard on human beings to perform that job? Oh, it all comes down to culture, right? I I know you're such a proponent of leadership and as am I, because it, it, the leader absolutely dictates the culture, at least has a huge influence on it. And then all of us within the culture are a big part of that culture. And it's also just where the history of medicines come from. You look back 200 years ago, the way it was practiced, completely all male, right? Physicians actually lived in the hospitals. That's why they're called residents. When they're oh, training. wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no, I mean, talk about inhumane, <laughs> the history of where we've come from as a profession. I mean, that's why there was no separation between work and life. The doctors gave all for their, for, for, for their, their patients. But, you know, we now in modern times, the breakdown of physicians in terms of gender has totally changed. Our roles are completely different. The kind of medicine we practice today is super different. So it's just transformed and changed so much, even in that time. And so we just have a history of this very, I think about some of the big institutions out there in the world, right? And uh, one of them is certainly religion. Another has a very strong culture, depending on what type of religion. Another one is military. I don't know a whole lot about the military, but I certainly have many friends who are in the military, and that's got a really strong culture, right? And I think that also medicine has a really strong, stoic, suck it up, put your head down, don't complain, you know, it's not about you, it's about the patient, right? So like in terms of hierarchy of needs, we always come last. Um, and that's how we're trained from day one. You know, you walk in, you have to take this, the Hippocratic Oath. It's all about all about doing no harm to the patient. And I think what we're starting to finally see in modern times, because we're coming to such a head at such a burnout crisis in healthcare, so many physicians are quitting this profession because they're just done, is, is flipping that around and going, how do we not harm ourselves in the process? How much of it is also the fact that you're on call? Because you could be called in the middle of the night to go help someone. Is there any sort of, is there any way to change that? Or is on call just going to be what it is for eternity and doctors are going to have to deal with it? I think that there are ways to change fields within medicine so that it's less burdensome. So we've seen, for instance, hospital medicine as an example because the reality is people need healthcare 24-7, right? Hospitals are one of the few institutions out there that are hospitals, fire departments, police stations, hotels, <laughs> I guess, too. I mean, there's a few industries that are never closed, right? We're always open on a holiday. You have to be ready and available to take care of people. And so that means people have to be there to staff to be ready to do it, right? And so certainly, if you look within physicians, fields like hospitalists where people do work shifts. So instead of living in the hospital now or your family doc coming around on you when you get admitted in the hospital, which is how it used to be, they were kind of see you in clinic and they would come over and see you in the hospital. You've got people who only work in the hospital and they work shifts. And there are certain people who work night shifts and it's limited to certain number of times a month. It's spaced out over time. 
right, to really account for your well-being and safety, which is a big piece too. So that's an example of like medicine that has to happen overnight. There are now shifts to cover those things. So that's a lot of where medicine is heading, I hope, because it's not it's not safe for human for people to work 30 hours straight. Have you seen changes in the in the rigors of the schedules of physicians since you've started to now? Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, the biggest example is that in training, there are duty hour restrictions. So there used to no be, be no cap. I don't know if you're familiar. Maybe your listeners are familiar. I didn't know this till I got into this world. But when you're in training, it used to be there was no cap on the number of hours you could work straight. So back in my dad's day, he's 81 now, or 80. Um, you know, he worked 50 hours straight and go home and sleep for a little bit and come back again. I mean, talk about just, well, it's not even inhumane for the individual, but it's also super not safe for the patient because we are not functional. I mean, it's worse than us being drunk, right? Like we're not functional. So those were the old days. When I started training, which was, two, I finished med school in 2007, I think duty hour restrictions, the first version had just come into play within the last year or two. So I was part of that new generation where we actually were not supposed to work more than 30 hours straight. That was our max. And uh, I, I mean, we pretty much almost went over 30 hours because <laughs> it just wasn't the culture to stop. And if you're not done with your work, you don't ever leave work for someone else, right? It's all about you take care of your stuff. You you're take number one responsibility. You don't, don't burden your colleagues. Um, but I think really that was the first huge change in medicine. That was 2005, I think, or so. We've actually had another version of that in like 10 years later, which is I think that first-year intern residents can only work like 14 or 16 hours straight, which I think is way better. Um, but then senior residents could work like 28 hours. And I don't know where we're at today. I hope it's better, but I don't think it's dramatically different than that. The challenge is that this is during training, but once you finish training, which is none of us are in training forever, I'm an attending, right? So I finished all this stuff like 10 years ago. There are no duty hours now. Like, no, there is no law that says we can't work 40 hours or we can't work every other night. There just isn't. There's nothing regulating that. And so it's, it's a little, it's all across the board what we see today once you hit the real world. I think it's important to highlight you're saying straight. 30 hours, 40 hours straight where you're mm -hmm. at the hospital not leaving, right? Mm -mm. There's no sleeping <laughs> typically. I mean, you might see wow. a call room. There might be a little downtime where you have time to catch up, but typically we're like charting. We have to document, right? Put all the orders in. We're also the call for, um, so you're in a hospital. I mean, there's someone on call, which means if there's a question and nurses are taking care of you at the bedside, then they'll call the doc. And usually there's maybe one or two docs covering like a lot of people. So you're pretty busy when you're working in the hospital. Would more doctors, is this a dumb question? Would more doctors <laughs> help the problem? Possibly. I mean, we, the reality is we're headed toward a physician shortage. So by 2033, it's supposed to be 140K physician shortage. And that was a pre-pandemic prediction. So it's going to be worse when we finally have some new data, if we get any more updated data. I mean, that's a real issue because we've only got about... We've got less than a million physicians in the United States. When you think about it, our population's only growing, right? And getting older. And getting older and getting, you know, as we get older, we have more health issues. Have you noticed a discernible change in the vibe at work pre-COVID versus post-COVID? Oh, yeah. Well, I would say huge change pre, during, 
post. Honestly, I know most of the world has moved on from the pandemic, and in many ways we have too within medicine, but I don't think people have processed the trauma of those three years um, because it was like, well, for a most, I mean, none of us have seen something like that. It doesn't matter what we did, right? As human beings, it was an experience none of us had been through before. I think especially in medicine, we saw the worst of the worst, like people were dying right in front of us. And so that's traumatic. Most physicians didn't go into medicine to be part of a, in a way, a war zone, right? For what that kind of, of care. And, um, but that was a lot of what we were having to do for a long time through each wave. I mean, there were multiple waves of that pandemic for a couple of years there. Now, you mentioned when you're working for so many hours straight, it, it clearly takes a burden on you. And it, could you quantify maybe the the level of care that decreases as you are at work for 20, 30, 40 hours? I mean, at what point do you think I'm really no longer an asset to this patient anymore? Oh, just me personally? Or do you like the actual data? <laughs> Well, if you got like, me, we'll, I'll take both of you. Yeah. Well, we do. Have, there actually is a lot of data showing of like higher medical errors um, and decreased quality and safety with the more number of hours a physician works, including. And a lot of that data came from residents because it's like very structured. We have, a, we, you know, these programs have to submit data to the ACGME. So it's, we have a lot more data in that space. So showing just it's worse, essentially, if people aren't sleeping, which makes sense because we're not functional. I mean, me personally, it, I'm, I'm not embarrassed. Well, I guess I sort of, well, I'm not embarrassed. I, I'm exhausted after like three hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I need a break every like hour, to be honest, to be functional, to be on, to be my full, give my full attention to every person I'm with. Like, uh, honestly, I need a break every hour, but that doesn't happen. I mean, most, most physicians see patients, they might start at 8 a.m., they go straight to 12, they might get a half hour lunch break. Then they got to do it all over again till 4 p.m. and it's back to back to back and you're just running. So, um, but I mean, I mean, if I could have my way, I would have it. No one work more than 12 hours straight. Yeah. And I think, and I want to stress this because, you know, when I'm working, Tammy, and I'm at the computer, I'll just zone out. I'll mm. zone out for minutes and minutes and minutes and time has gone by. But as a doctor, you don't, you don't get that luxury. There's somebody poking you on the shoulder. I need this. I need that. There's someone here. There's, yeah. there's something else. It seems very hectic from what I've heard and what I've maybe seen on TV, whether that's true or not. The <laughs> it's not as glamorous as on TV. <laughs> sure, it's sure. not as well lit either. Yeah. Definitely not as well lit. And the scrubs do not fit that well either <laughs> <Sure>. in real life. <laughs> now, I've heard you call for either an end or a restructuring of the mental health questions on credentialing and licensures for doctors. Could you go into what those questions actually are? Of course. There, I mean, I'm so grateful because there is a huge organization, wonderful organization doing really spearheading this work nationally called the Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It was founded of, um, by the family of Dr. Lorna Breen who took her own life as an ER physician, took her own life at the beginning of the pandemic. And the main reason why was she, I mean, she got, she wouldn't, couldn't go get help. She was scared to do so because she thought it would impact her ability to practice medicine. And that is the fear. If you look at the data, four out of 10 physicians are fearful that, that if they go get help, like go see a therapist or go see the employee assistance program at work, that it will, it'll negatively impact their ability 
to remain like in practice. That's the, what they think. So the questions, we've got two sets of questions. So we've got each, each state in the United States has a medical board. So you have to, first of all, get your license in the state you practice. And we typically have to renew every two years. So there's questions on that. There's also specific questions credentialing for the hospital or the system you work for. So, and those sometimes may be the same types of questions. Sometimes they're not aligned. So we're really, I live in the state of Washington. I don't know what it's, what it is in Colorado. I'd have to go look it up right now. I know you're in Colorado, but I know that our, we're so lucky because in the state of Washington, we have a really excellent physician health program. So there's not every state has this, which is so fascinating, but most states have a, like a safety net program to help physicians and PAs. And I think also dentists fall in there, um, to help them with mental health, with substance abuse disorders, with psychiatric issues and help them get them back on board so that they can get, get well, so they can go back to work and helps protect them from these licensure issues. Not every state has that. And so the questions they're asking, are they essentially trying to see if you're mentally fit as deemed by this governing body to practice? Right. So the questions that are on both state and some credentialing like credentialing is, have you had a mental health or substance abuse issue in the last five years that have impacted your ability to care for patients? Yes or no. And you have to answer truthfully. And in the last five years... Right. So that's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and the way it's phrased, it's like in the last five years, have you in the last five years or could you now per- cur- currently or could you in the future have a substance abuse, psychiatric disorder or et cetera, that could impact your ability to care for patients, which I understand where it comes from, because we obviously need everyone. And you're going to be a physician. You better be in a good state to care for patients. Right. Otherwise, it's it's, it's an ethical and safety concern. But that wording itself is so scary right, to any physician. And this is why we've seen decades of physicians. I mean, this is not the only reason, but it's a a factor in physicians not actually seeking help. It seems like they should break that question up into substances and then the mental aspect. Okay. So let's, let's go down the road where you answer yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Which I think a lot of people in any field would answer yes to having some mental, uh, hangups in the last five years, what happens then? Do you get mm-hmm. a phone call from the board saying, hey, we want to talk to you some more? Yeah. So the board might, depending on how you answer the questions, refer you to the medical commission for the state for review. So they that so that review would either, for the licensure, they either approve or, or do not approve your ability to practice medicine in that state. Um, for the credentialing piece, which is like, you, you know, you could have a medical license like in Washington, for instance, but I still need to have credentialing at, at all the hospitals I work at. And I work at several hospitals. And so there's typically a medical executive committee at each hospital within a system comprised of physicians, typically, and colleagues and peers and executives who then review the documents and all the the forms, et cetera, for each individual and approve or not, not approve them. So they might get flagged there too as well if they have a history of a mental illness in the past. Do you know of anyone who's lost credentials or their license because of how they answered this and they were just being honest? No, because if the reality is if, if someone answers yes to that, then we get them help. And, and that's part of it too. I, I am, I'm coming from a very privileged place, which is where I work in a system where I'm the medical director of physician AP wellness. And so I essentially get clued in to 
anytime anyone needs anything, right? And uh, and our, our goal is to make sure that people are, are getting support and help and not afraid to um, to get that support because that's the only way we can get better, right? We don't need to go all the way to the point of suicidality if we can help people far, far along before they get to that place. When did that shift happen where it wasn't just an automatic DQ because of how you answer that? Was that like early 2000s, mid 2000s, 90s? Uh, I think it's in the last like 10, 15 years. Oh, pretty recent. Okay. It's very recent. Yeah. It's, a, it's actually a really current issue right now. So, because many states don't even have that safety net program or still in their state licensure still ask these questions. In, in Washington state, in, so there's the Federation of State Medical Boards has made a recommendation for the entire country, which is for every state, but not every state has complied because, you know, it's, it's up to the state how they, what they want to do. But they, uh, they essentially say on first time licensure, do you have a current substance abuse, et cetera, disorder? that could impair or mental illness that could impair your ability to take care of patients safely right now, which I think is very fair. Right. And, um, and then when you recredential, cause you do it every two years and they ask within the last two years, have you, since you last filled this, this form out and that's the way it's done nationally. And that's the current recommendation it, to me. I would love for those to be out completely, but we're not there yet. That's okay. At least we're taking a step in the right direction. Well, it's easy to see why talking about this with other physicians might be seen as taboo. Because there's there's the potential you could lose your career, your ability to to generate a living. So, have you ever worked at a different location where you did feel the stresses and the fear of talking with other doctors at work about what you're going through, and instead just kept it in? Is that a common occurrence? Oh, I mean, it's still a case where I work, even though I'm part of all this culture change stuff. It's just it's pervasive across healthcare. I mean, there are parts of our of our country where physicians are still, I mean, scared to even admit they might be going through burnout. And I mean, we know that like almost 70% of physicians are going through burnout nationally. So it's like they're not alone, right? But that is a red flag already in some systems, unfortunately, around the country. And so it's not even safe to admit that you might be struggling at all in a lot of places. Are there laws to protect doctors who speak out to their employer and say, hey, I, I might need some extra help? Or is there just free reign for them to open up repercussions and get them out the door? Well, it probably varies by hospital system. I mean, each system or, or group should have HR policies, right? I mean, it's not any different than a disabilities accommodation. But I mean, physicians are Already, you take a culture, you know, I was talking about that culture, 200 years old, 300 years old of like stiff upper lip. You don't, you don't, I mean, you just soldier on. I mean, you don't, <laughs> this whole world now of telling how we're feeling is like this new thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I do, I do credit women because we're like, no, we can't keep hold this in because this is not working and we need a better way and we want something better for our children. Right. So, um, so this, it is new, this whole culture of, speaking out and being open. Um, I, I really hope it'll change in the next 10, 20, 20, 30 years. I mean, I hope to see it change myself someday. But there are no like laws protecting no it laws. right now? I mean, don't even get me started. There, We don't even have laws that protect parental leave in the United States, regardless of industry. So we have a long ways to go to like make this a great place to live for our citizens. Right? I think about that kind of stuff a lot, like as a society. How are we really caring for our people? Because unfortunately, the only way 
that maybe a large hospital or, or a big corporation will identify a need to change is because of money, right? An impact to revenue. Is there- Or law. Or law. Yeah, there's two, right? You mm-hmm. either have to or you want to because the bottom line is being impacted. Right. Yeah. Is there any way to prove that the hardships being faced by women physicians is impacting a hospital's ability to bring in revenue? Could that be a way to spark change from the bottom up? Well, I think there's one way to 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 do it, and that's how everything I'm involved in, we make a case, is this is the financial impact of losing one physician to burnout or quitting or turnover. And we know that. We know it costs on average 500 k to a million dollars to replace one physician, which is a lot of money. Wow. Uh, and that includes mm. right it, the amount of money. Like you're essentially, there's usually a gap between the physician saying they're leaving and you're able to replace that person, right? So there's the, there's the hiring and the recruitment costs. There's also the new physician. It usually takes them a little time to get onboarded and get up to speed and learn the new system because we it, it, a lot of it's based on like how many patients we see and how we see them and how we care for patients over time. You know, at least currently in the fee for service model, it's 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 uh, we're paid right by patient we're seeing. Although that's changing, so it it does take a lot of time um, to get someone else onboarded once a physician leaves. So that that is one very concrete way, which is what systems around the country are doing to justify their wellness programs. Because if we can save one physician from quitting, whether it's a woman or man or you know, it doesn't matter the gender, non-binary, um, it, then it saves us potentially a million dollars, depending on the specialty. What's an average length of tenure for one of your female coworkers at work? You mean full-time? Yeah, full-time, your counterpart, or in a different area of medicine. The vast majority, well, and it's skewed because I work in a pediatric hospital, and we're like 70% women. So a lot of us are full-time there. People are sticking it out. Um, but if you look around the country, I look. I think about my friends around the country. Vast majority have reduced their hours. Some have quit medicine completely. Um, if they haven't quit on medicine already, they've been talking about it for a while. Oh, sure, I bet. Is yeah. it like? Is being a doctor? Excuse my ignorance, Tammy. Is it like being an engineer or in another field where you can just apply to another job and go do it? Or is there a lot more hoops that you have to jump through, which kind of concretes your feet to where you're at currently and makes it harder to move? Um, it, and it's not impossible. I do think we, it depends on how we look at it, depending on the specialty. So for me, I'm a pediatric oncologist, which is very narrow. There are not a lot of places I can practice. So if, I, if I'm willing to do general pediatrics somewhere else or urgent care, uh, then I have a lot more options. So in general, the more specific the field, which typically took more training, you know, it took more years <laughs> in training to get there, the less job options we have. If we're in primary care or emergency medicine or even ICU medicine, um, urgent, uh, did I say urgent care? I mean, the, the broader fields, right? They can find anesthesia is huge, right? Everyone needs an anesthesia. There's not enough anesthesiologists. I mean, you can find a job anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but depends on the specialty. So in general, I think it might be fair to say that it's not quite as easy as a two weeks and then you hop on board somewhere else as a doctor. Oh no. It's probably like three to six months to shift jobs. Yeah. If you could go back to yourself in medical school, Tammy, and and give yourself uh, 30 seconds of wisdom to prepare yourself for what you're about to step into, what would that have been? 
it's so fun because I was just thinking, I was in this class last night where we were talking to our younger selves and we were having our younger selves give us advice. So, oh, interesting. Oh, and I'm still learning today, Joe. So, I mean, it's not like I have it all figured out. I often look to my older self for guidance. <laughs> I'm like, I hope I'll know something by the time I'm 62. <laughs> well, I hope I've learned something about life. We'll <laughs> sure. see. But, um, oh, gosh, I was so intense and driven and serious 20 years ago. And I still, there's a huge part of me that is. Uh, and I think that's the part of me that has driven my burnout experience for sure. And it continues to be something I work at every day. I, I would give, I would say to give myself grace and compassion. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Um, it's not the end of the world if something isn't perfect or you don't do well in this or this person doesn't like you. Like it's, it's let it don't, don't take it so seriously, <laughs> to be honest. Um, life doesn't have to be so, so heavy. And I've heard you speak a lot on the importance of boundaries as a doctor. And I think that ties into what you were just saying. But I can't help but wonder this change into telemedicine is really blurring the lines with setting boundaries because I've yeah, I'm probably part everyone. of the problem. Yeah. Cause I've I've sent a message to my doctor and I got a reply at like 9 30 PM. And I no. went I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it could have waited. Um, is it harder now than it was even just a few years ago to maintain those boundaries? Well, I think it's just also the culture that we were trained in, which is to always put your patients first, really a high sense of risk, like maybe outsized sort sense of responsibility. And often our days are so packed, we don't have time to answer those messages until nighttime. And that's when a lot of people are charting, finishing their notes or doing the orders or catching up on those messages because there might be something important there from a patient who needs something, right? And um, to set those hard boundaries is really hard for all of us. It doesn't, honestly, I think, it doesn't regardless of the gender, we all struggle to go, oh, to give ourselves permission to not be on all the time because that's how we're trained. I mean, that's why we went into this field to help. And um, I think it gets overexpressed for many of us. What's an average car ride home like for you, Tammy, where you've had a very difficult day with young patients who are going through horrible, horrible situations? How do you, how do you decompress? How do you keep work at work? Mm, I'm working on this every day too. I found, and I'm, I'm good about it. I leave by five if I'm in, in a clinical day, um, but I'm lucky. I don't have a huge load like I used to, too. And I'm very aware of that, of how lucky I am to have. And I think also in pediatric oncology, we're given more time with families and patients, which I'm so, at least we get 20 minutes. It's not 15 per patient. And if it's a new patient and there's really something serious going on, you know, our, our group really, we help each other out. I mean, we're going to like cover each other's patients so that person can sit with that family of whatever, whatever's needed. Cause we, that's what we need. Right. And we, 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 I'm really lucky. I have a wonderful work, work group. So your question is, how do I decompress? Um, I do love to listen to music. I sometimes will do a walking, driving meditation on an app on the way home from Insight Timer, which I really enjoy. Um, Sometimes I always, not always, but I almost always either go on a walk with my husband and our dogs right after work, if it's not pouring rain, um, or I'll try to catch a hot yoga class right after work. And that just helps me like really decompress and clear my mind. What's say you had a really hard day, mm. you hop onto Spotify. What's the song you're searching out to get out of that state of mind? 
depends because sometimes you can't go too happy, right? If it's been a really hard day. Honestly, I've been listening to the soundtrack of the third season of Ted Lasso a lot lately. Oh, cool. And it just makes me smile. It does. <laughs> and there's some really sad stuff in it, too. I mean, there's some beautiful things. There's fun things. There's also really haunting things in that, in that soundtrack, too. So I've been doing that a lot lately. That's a good one. I'll have to check that one out. You're talking about difficult days and you're you're all working together to pick up, you know, if someone's behind, maybe you're you're mm-hmm. helping out in any way you can. Let's go 50 years in the future. Technology's advanced a lot. Mm. In a dream scenario, you're a doctor, you walk into a room with a patient, what sorts of new pieces of hardware do you have to make your life easier? Like, is there a robot next to you? Is there a hologram taking notes? What's going on? Well, actually right now we have ai trials in a lot of our healthcare systems where it's essentially an ai scribe so it's oh, like cool. on an app on our phone and because we already have the voice dictation that's actually quite good now and this is now that's not 50 years from now so i have no hmm, i'll think about that i'll answer that in a second <laughs> but we have um dictation software now where essentially it's like an a, an artificial intelligent thing in our phone that listens to the visit which sounds creepy strange. And then it essentially transcribes the entire visit into a note for us. Wow. Does it interpret it, the meeting for you too? Nope. It just lit it'll, I mean a little, I think there's some interpret. I haven't gotten a chance to trial it cause we're, we're looking into potentially doing it, but I, I know of other places around the country that are starting. It's very expensive, but I do think that is the wave of the future because such of the, so much of the burden now, because pretty much everyone is on an electronic medical record, which we weren't until about 10, 15 years ago as a country, um, then it's the burden of all the charting and all the, all the stuff we have to do on the computer now. And so, and a lot of what drives the burnout too is that we're spending all this time charting. We know that we spend more than 50% of our time of in a day in front of a computer, not in front of a human. Wow. And we all came to medicine to care for humans, not to be a scribe, right? And But we spend most of our time charting. And that's a huge disconnect for a lot of us too. So the more we can put us face-to-face with people is why, we, why we're here. And I think it's also more meaningful and more healing for people when they're with, with their doc, right? In person, or at least at the minimum over a screen without their doc distracted trying to type something. So what a a next step be the AI takes what it heard and then kind of gives you like your own second opinion on what's going on. Would that be, would that be useful (laughs) for you? Like Tammy, I think it's this or. It could be if it's good. I mean, I'm all for that because I don't think AI can completely replace us. I think that's the fear. Right. Uh, Yes. And I don't think uh, personally, I would never want to go see a robot doctor. I think that would terrify me. Um, but yeah, not replacing you, but I think, yeah, maybe that's a great point. There's a fine line we want to walk between when it's useful versus encroaching. Do you think that point of them actually prescribing what the treatment should be would be that stepping over the lines moment? Yeah. I mean, it's a huge ethical question, I think, too, in this whole space. Thankfully, we're not there yet, but we're. I think we're going to have to deal with that in the next 50 years. Yeah, because I, I go to say I'm a doctor and I'm not quite sure what the diagnosis is. I go to the internet myself and mm-hmm. I do the research. Mm-hmm. So then what would be the difference if a sentient being did that research for me and told me the answer or gave me multiple choices? It's It's an interesting dilemma. Absolutely. 
I mean, I'd be curious to know what it looks like someday. Because the reality is, I think Google's such a great tool. And I, I really, I don't discourage families from using it because they're going to do it anyways. And I use it. So I just, I always, I, I think it's like a tool, but if it's unsupervised, it can be really damaging because you Google something. And of course, pretty much all the negative things come up first, or it may not be actually directly relevant to your loved one or yourself or your child, because it might be about, like for instance, I do pediatrics. So when you Google leukemia, adult leukemia comes up, right? And a lot of scary things come up. And adult leukemia is very different than childhood leukemia. So that's, a, that's an example. But because uh, I know a lot of AI is going to take information from what's on the internet, right? Or maybe from a, a good source. But we even have databases um, where it essentially takes all the literature and consolidates it for us in an article. But like as pediatric oncologists, we don't really use that for oncology because it's never up to date enough. So it depends on where the original source is coming from too. That's a great point because medicine is always changing. There's yeah. always a new breakthrough, a new development. The textbooks are always behind. Like by the time I have multiple editions of the same textbook and it's still like not accurate. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, because there's new stuff, right? That comes out all the time and the textbook might come out every five to 10 years or five years. Yeah. So same thing. So along the technology lines and mandating ways to help prevent burnout, could you foresee a world where you're wearing some sort of smartwatch that's tracking your stress levels and your overall mental well-being, and it can identify when burnout is either happening or about to happen? And I mean, do you think it will have to come to that in order to force uh, the change that you think is really needed in the medical profession? Well, I think the issue isn't identifying burnout because pretty much everyone has it. It's making changes in the system. Be the burnout is, is because is, we know that 80% of burnout is because of medicine, the culture of medicine, the way we function, the way we practice. So that's what has to change. Do you think though, that if there was a quantifiable metric that could be established where, Hey, if this individual reaches this level, no matter what, they either need to go home, they need to rest, they need to do something. Ooh. I would love that. Who's going to work for them instead, though? That's the who's going to fill that spot. <laughs> Ooh, that's a great point. I mean, because uh, we actually already do that. We have validated assessments. Yeah, that's one of the things we we get for we have our our physicians and APPs do. But I mean, who isn't scoring a three or higher on the Mayo Wellbeing Index all the time? I mean, I'm scoring above that quite frequently, and I'm the wellness director. So, you know, it's but then it's like. Who's going to take care of the patients then if you send 80% of your workforce home? That's the challenge. That, that's maybe another reason to bring in some, uh, some tech, I guess. I don't know. I, it, it just seems like there's, there, might, there might be a way to balance the two. And I know reducing your menial tasks would probably go a long way in reducing the burnout and the stress of 50% of your time is chart noting. If you're working... 40 hours straight, you've done 20 hours of notes. Yep. That's incredible. It's sad. <laughs> it's like off. I mean, it's not why we did this, we got into this field, but it's what we do now. It's, and it's, it's interesting too, because you compare the way we document in this country compared to like other countries, we're like four times longer. Our notes are four times longer than like in many parts of Europe. So it's, it's malpractice, it's litigious um, fear from this part. Fear, fear of 
litigation. Oh. Yeah. That's why our notes are longer and we spend so much more time. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in other countries, there's not that same ability to persecute a doctor for an action they took? I don't know. I don't know, but um, it's certainly, we don't see it play out in the way they document in the AMR. Interesting. Yeah. Which okay, I think so- is, it's a, that's why data is powerful, right? Because you can't really like argue with data. I mean, I, I have obviously have opinions <laughs> that may or may not be backed up by data, but if you've got studies that are showing that for like, for instance, a, an adult endocrinologist in the United States charts, four, their notes are four times longer with four times more characters than an adult endocrinologist in Germany, then wow. what is the difference? What's going on here? Interesting. So there's yeah. a, there's a fear that you'll have to go back and prove your thoughts on, uh, yeah. on the diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever been in a situation like that before where you've had to go back in and and pull up old notes to, to make sure that you were not going to be held liable for something? Oh, I, uh, of course hope this will never happen, but all of us are at risk of, of being sued. So I'll, I'll just for now, not yet, but you know what, if I continue to practice medicine, it's inevitable. So, um, and I'm aware of that, you know, we all, it's all a risk that we know we take in this work. But do you think the new, this new ability to have AI um, speech to text, do you think that'll help and reduce some of that fear? I hope so. I don't think it's going to change the fear. That's the problem. I think the people who are really OCD and really fearful and have the mindset, the fear-based mindset of, if I don't put everything I'm thinking on this in this note, then I might get sued. Um, they're probably going to be those people who go back and look at the whole entire note the AI wrote and like double check it and change it. And I'm like, no, stop. <laughs> that yeah, the so it yeah. Is a, yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother discussion. I, I, um, I'm very strong on the mindset of approaching pretty much everything, but especially charting in the EMR. And I, I do think that is the missing link for a lot of physicians, like why they spend so much time in that EMR. What sorts of changes in the the legal system, I guess, would help alleviate some of the pressures faced by physicians. And I don't know enough about the legal system, right? That's fair. But it sounds like it's a scary overarching cloud that you have to be aware of. Well, but the vast majority of um, physicians who might be like have risk management involved or have a a patient complaint or even been named in a lawsuit, the vast majority of those don't even ever go to trial. And I think that it's education as well for our physicians because we don't, we're so scared, but I mean, what percentage of us even ever even go to trial for malpractice and how, what percentage of those people have to then deal with the watch, like the medical commission, right. And will it impact their ability to practice? So it's a very, very small percentage, but we blow all these things out of proportion and then it completely impacts how we, we act throughout the day. And I, I do think it's a factor. Um, I think a huge part of it too is how we were trained to chart and write notes. A lot of us are trained the old way, which is if you didn't, if you don't write it down, then you didn't think it. Wow. And it's all about defending what, because we always have to give a differential diagnosis. And a lot of how we were trained was like the Socratic method and how you, you had to, you had to like defend what diagnosis you thought it was. And you had to always think of, you know, the eight, nine, 10 ways this patient could die. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so it's that kind of culture, right? And so that's that's where we come from too. And that's still being taught today then? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, I hope some of the culture internally is changing. I think it is. Uh, I know medical schools are at least talking about burnout and that's a huge step forward. Now, say you're at work and you see one of your peers that you really think is burned out. How do you approach that conversation with them? Because you don't want to overreach, but you also want to help them. How do you go about having those conversations, Tammy? Oh, I, I always think the vast majority of us when we're struggling, it's really hard to reach out for help, right? But if it comes from someone who's loving and caring, who we trust, or whether they're in our inner circle or not, we might be more willing to listen to them, right? And so if it's someone I know personally, um, especially if I have the kind of relationship where I can text them, I might say, hey, if, if I'm not seeing them in person, um, I might send them a text message to check in or say, hey, do you want to go for a walk or just been a little worried about you lately? Um, what's going on for you? And and they, I think part of it, too, is I'm really lucky. I, I think I've had the chance to meet a lot of people personally and be part of that. And I'm very open about my personal story. Like all over the place. And so people hear me and I think they view, I hope they view me as safe and they know I will keep it confidential, right? Unless they give me permission to share or unless there's something that's a, they're at yeah, risk for harm then I have to share. But, and I always put, say that up front, but um, I'm viewed as hopefully a safe space. And so, um, and then it's like, well, what can we do to make it better? I mean, I'm very recently actually went through burnout myself and I had uh, people reached out to me, right? To check in on me. And I'm so grateful they did because I may not have changed things if they hadn't done that for me. And if I remember right, you took kind of a sabbatical, I think, from work. Did. How long? How long? And were you afraid to to announce that to your... Oh, I didn't tell anyone. That was about four or five years ago. And that was three months um, time leave of absence. Were you fearful there would be repercussions? Well, no, I, I had very, very wonderful support from my my medical leader, my medical director, our chief medical officer. I felt really supported, my colleagues. I'm, I'm so lucky. Um, I do think that where I work is really wonderful because they really did protect me and go other way to make sure I was okay and checked in on me when I was out. And um, and that's what, I can't control that across the board, you know, in a large system, but that's certainly what we are trying to do. And what are some changes that you've implemented at your hospital to help people either deal with or hopefully avoid the situations where they are getting burned out? What sorts of things have you implemented that other either hospitals or organizations could possibly leverage? Oh, yeah. We essentially have followed all the evidence-based practices that are like this gold standard of care around the country from um, Stanford has really led the way. The Mayo Clinic has led the way. The AMA has really led the way. So we follow that that foundation. So, I mean, the very first thing I did was create a peer support program. And uh, it's just a wonderful, I mean, there's about 20 of them for a system of about 5,000 people. But um, it it it's like an important piece because every single one of those people who are part of it, their peers know about them, right? And they all wanted to be part of it because they had struggled themselves in some way and really didn't have that support when they were going through stuff and they wish they, they had something like that. So I think having, there's a lot of data showing that physicians in general were very mistrustful of mental health professionals and leaders and administrators. So we just don't seem to trust. We're like, we don't trust them. We don't feel safe, but we feel safest with a peer. Someone who's been through we've, what we've been through. So it's, it's not unlike 
you know, you go through battle together, like you're, you're bonded for life, right? And those training years are really tough. And so when someone has a shared history with us, um, there is an unspoken bond and an understanding, right? They don't have to explain. So we have that. Um, we do a lot of things to really bring people together. So we have like a meal program where groups of eight to 10, um, we pay for them to go out to meals and they have, they have required discussion questions <laughs> um, for just for the first part. And that's from me because I'm all about <laughs> creating intentional spaces for discussion and, and safety, you know, together. Um, and it's called the, the raft program. So reflection and fellowship together, like a raft of otters, because we want everyone to feel like they've got their own raft of otters or a life raft at work. So creating intentional community, because a lot of what we struggle with is isolation um, I do count coaching. We have internal counseling that we've, we've set up for our physicians, APPs. We have external counseling that we help them access. Um, we've had, we've done multiple storytelling events now where it's kind of like narrative medicine, similar with the moth story no. hour. Uh, it's a really cool program where it's essentially people tell their, it's like a story slam, but people come and tell their raw personal stories. It's not unlike Ted, but it's not rehearsed. <laughs> like Ted, we pr- clearly practiced a lot, right? For <laughs> that thing. There's right. no practicing um, or very little practicing. It's very raw, not polished, but um, it's done. It's like this really safe space. It, it started, the moth started off in people's homes, actually in their living rooms. And it became this like the salon cool. right now. It's like a storytelling thing, but we created our own version of that. Cause we know, that really does a lot to be healing for others. And even if they can't attend in person, people, we have recordings, right, of these stories from other colleagues who are, we, just, we put those on our intranet and we share them, et cetera. So we do stuff like that. Um, I'm involved in a lot of org- organizational development, leadership development initiatives to really change culture too as well. So that's just a smattering of things that we've been doing over the last couple of years. A lot of little things, hopefully adding up to big changes. And before I let you go, Tammy, you know, we're, we're all patients at some point. And, yeah. uh, and I think we've identified the struggles that doctors, specifically female physicians are going through as a patient who's walking into the examination room. Can you, can you recommend what the mindset should be, what the body language should be? How can we better facilitate doctors to do their job, which is clearly very difficult. Oh, well, that was by my deep wish, right at the end of my TED talk for, for all of us. And I'm a patient too. Uh, but it's just, I think realizing that the job of the physician might actually be quite hard, right? And that they are, they really are there because they want to take good care of you and not because they're there to, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of mistrust of physicians. I think there's a lot of expectations placed on physicians. And I think just giving them grace and honestly sharing some gratitude. Um, I might overdo it with my personal gratitude when I go to see my doctors, but I'm like, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for doing, I don't know if you like that, but I mean, because I know how hard it is, right? As a doc too, to do this job. And so I'm like very grateful. And I think it goes a long way. It's not like most we did not go into this to make money or to have for the most part, people aren't doing it for anything other than truly really caring and wanting to be of service to others. I mean, that, that is, that's why I love this profession. It's why I do love my colleagues, even though we're struggling because we're for the most part here for altruistic reasons and for the right reasons. And so your physician is really there to want to help you. And so help them help you. Right. And if um, we're defensive or closed, it's really hard for, your doc to help us, right? And 
Um, if we're you just extend gratitude and some grace, maybe they're running late. It's usually not because they wanted to run late. <laughs> There's usually many factors um, to give them that grace too. That goes a long ways. I can't help but think when you walk in the the door, Tammy, there should be like a stat, like a battery bar. And then like after 40 hours, it's like negative 20%. I feel like there might be a little bit more grace if people really understood what you all were going through on a daily basis. Tammy, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I want to plug your book, Boundaries for Women Physicians. Uh, this is a great resource for folks to, to, well, for physicians to better, I think, handle the stresses and everything that we talked about here and, and to recognize you're not alone and that there's so many other people who are going through that. Tammy, what are some other ways folks can get a hold of the work you're doing right now? I think you've got the, the pink coat as well. Yeah, that's the main thing I do, the pink coat MD. So we have this community that we've created and it's all digital online. So you can join from anywhere, but we've put all the evidence-based best resources all together in one place for, for women physicians. So my, I co-created it with my med school classmate from Brown, Louisa. And we essentially just created what we wish we had when we were struggling. So that's there, www.pinkcoatmd.com. And then uh, we have a book there too as well on how to thrive. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tammy. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank Thank you for doing this.